And and we sit down and we're sitting there and she's drinking coffee and um and I I start to you know talk about the size of the gift and she literally spits her coffee out. Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. Did you know that, according to research, only about one-third of the prospects fundraisers like you get thrown on their caseloads are truly qualified, and even fewer are actually ready for your outreach? Think about that. If you're like most, two-thirds of the leads you've been getting are not really qualified to be on your list. Sure, they might have given in the past, and their wealth screen ratings might be high. But if they won't accept your outreach, what good is all that research anyway, right? It's a serious problem, but there is a solution. And you can find it in Greg Warner's book titled Engagement Fundraising, which you can get right now at no cost whatsoever at imarketsmart.com forward slash free book. That's right. You can learn how hundreds of organizations and thousands of fundraisers are succeeding in today's era of fundraising climate change by grabbing your free digital copy or audiobook version of Greg's very popular book today. Get it now, 100% free. Engagement fundraising at imarketsmart.com forward slash free book. That's imarketsmart.com forward slash free book. Well, welcome to the One Visit Away podcast, Tom. Thanks for being here. Hey, it's my pleasure, Kevin. Yeah, so if you could give everybody a brief intro and tell us about yourself. Well, um, I, uh, I'm a fundraising consultant these days. I started fundraising uh, back when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, we, we needed a fellowship of Christian athletes uh, group at my high school and uh, was kind of leading that charge. And I wanted it to be official. I wanted to have an actual charter from the, uh, the parent organization. I need $75 to do it. And uh, I didn't have a job. And so I decided to seek out some businessmen that I knew that might be supportive of that. And I won't incriminate anyone, but the first one turned me down. Uh, the, uh, but the second one said yes and wrote me, uh, wrote me a $75 check. So that was, that was the biggest uh, gift you know, I'd ever, well, that's the first gift I had ever closed, but it, it felt like a million dollars to me. And uh, I've been hooked, been hooked on it ever since. Man, that is awesome. And the other thing I love about that story is it fits right in line with what I have heard others say and I found to be true is, you know, averaged out over a bunch of asks, you're usually going to get about 50% of what you ask for. So you asked for 150 bucks total and you got 75 and uh, spot on. That's that's held true for me for about 20 some years of my professional life. Um, I, uh, I was always pretty careful to keep uh, a database of every, every call I made, every, every ask I made. And so I, I can tell you uh, from a spreadsheet that I pretty much have closed 50% uh, of every ask I've made. And the way it works out even is the total amount of money I solicit. I tend to close half that amount of money. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. It's really interesting. I don't know why that is, but it's, uh, yeah, that right there is, 
one of the uh, little secret formulas you can use is like, if you want to raise a million dollars and you only make a million dollars in asks, or you plan to make a million dollars in asks, you're not going to be successful. You got to, you got to plan on making at least, you know, twice as much in asks, generally speaking. But yeah, I love that story of how you got into it. So you started with 75 bucks and then, and then, okay, so you said you needed some kind of license. And then what did you, what did you do from there? It, it was an official charter. Um, and, um, you know, I, I try to remember, I don't think we needed to renew or anything, but we were official then. So I sent that money into the, the local office and, you know, we were on the map. So that was, that was pretty awesome. Okay. And what sports were you playing? Uh, I did uh, track and field, cross country, uh, indoor track. Uh, okay. So, so three seasons there, really one sport, just distance running. Yeah. Neat. Okay. So, so that was your first introduction. And then how did you kind of get into the, the professional aspect? Oh yeah. So, so when I was in college, you know, I, uh, I got involved with some, uh, some volunteering, uh, and doing mission trips and things like that, uh, with an organization as a student leader. And, uh, part of that, you know, you had to raise money if you wanted to go on some of these trips. And so, so I started doing that and, um, you know, accidentally kind of built a do- a, like a, a donor list in that way through my own personal networks and ended up uh, after college, uh, ended up being recruited by um, an organ- a faith-based organization to start a, a youth program, ironically, in my hometown. And um, I just kept that, that donor list and continued uh, kind of working with those folks and uh, was in that role for about eight years. And, uh, we, um, we had a a really great run. It's still going 24 years later. And, um, you know, the, the thing that's really cool, you know, back when I was a kid that the organization existed, uh, in my community, my brothers were involved, my stepsister, and, um, it, it went away after about three or four years. It was just sort of a flash in the pan. And a lot of it had to do with funding. And so when I, you know, handed the organization over to one of my volunteers. It was really important that we kept that base of funding. And we've been very fortunate. Um, I'm, I continue to be a donor to that organization and, uh, and it's, it's still going strong. And a lot of it is because of that original um, base of funding we were able to establish. Yeah, that's awesome. So there's a lot of things we could talk about in terms of your career. I'm sure anybody who's been around for for as long as you have, has got a lot of interesting career turns, I'm sure. But I'd love to hear some of the stories you've got of visits you've been on. And if you just want to take it away with whatever's top of your mind, I'd love to hear about it. Well, I think, I think one of my favorite stories, Hmm. um, so I I worked with, you know, dentists exclusively Hmm. for about seven and a half years at the uh, OSU sorry, the Ohio State University College of Dentistry. Um, We always used to like to joke that raising money from dentists was like pulling teeth. (laughs) And um, that is good. (laughs) I I found them uh, to be just as generous as as any other population. And and many of them, you know, make a good living. And so it was easy to solicit gifts there. Uh, But, you know, one of my favorite stories, there was a fella and he was the same age as me. So I was about 28, 29 at the time when we met. Uh, we had actually gone to college together. Uh, I didn't know him, 
uh, went to Bowling Green. So it was uh, uh, about 20,000 people at my university. And um, this fellow was really skeptical. Um, there were aspects of his dental education that he wasn't crazy about, uh, especially regarding the, um, the use of, of advanced, you know, the newest technology, I, I'd say. Most dental schools don't want to do anything that's uh, not at least 15 years old and has, has some good clinical data behind it. So there were some ac- aspects of technology that he was kind of salty about. And, and I could tell, like, we sat down just to chat because I knew the guy he had bought the practice from. And uh, he was a, a good donor to the college. And um, we, we got to talking and he's just railing, just railing about, you know, you know, the college doesn't teach kids to use, you know, the, the most modern sorts of things. And, and so it, it started as a conversation that I, I initially thought might not go anywhere. And he was kind of young. And I, and, you know, I, I, he had disclosed that he had spent, you know, seven figures to buy the practice that he bought. And, uh, and so there's a lot of signs there that, yeah, maybe this isn't the guy, um, especially as a 28, 29 year old, but I'll tell you, um, we, I was able to kind of connect his passion about the students not getting access to some of this real high tech stuff. Uh, I leveraged that initially into a $10,000 uh, cash gift from him. Um, and then within a year, I'd gotten a $40,000 uh, pledge from him. Uh, and then he was able to connect me with some corporate connections he knew that allowed us later to get a six-figure gift uh, along those lines. And he continued to be a good donor uh, to the college for a good while. Um, but it was it was really great because, you know, a lot of times we think of love being the opposite of hate. And it was a really great example of, you know, the, the opposite of love is apathy. When you see somebody that is fired up and upset about something, you're talking to somebody who cares. And, and this, this donor cared a lot about our students. He cared a lot about modernizing uh, the dental uh, education. And, uh, and that was able to translate into some really great gifts. Um, and, and having a young person uh, in their 20s make a gift like that, uh, you know, other people found out about that. And that helped set the stage for some other people giving as well. It's a, it's a great point that there's a, there's a number of reasons that you gave in that story that he likely would not have been a good prospect um, if we're going off of just assuming what a piece of data probably means. Uh, but exactly like you said, like, I mean, it's so easy to hear somebody just rant a bunch of things they're upset about at a particular organization and just go, oh, well, I guess that means they don't want to give. And it's like, well, have you asked them? Like, have you asked them, hey, I know you got all these concerns and these these problems, but is that a, is that a hindrance to you considering a gift to the organization? And sometimes... It is, and sometimes it's not, but we just got to ask. Well, yeah, and it's it's. I found that it's helpful um, when when someone does start to to have a negative comment about an organization I've worked for is is to just sort of pivot and say, well, what if we could change that? You know, what if the things we could do to fix that? Um, you know, 
what you'll find, especially with that particular demographic at, at, in dental schools, many of the uh, professors um, that uh, the boomer generation would have had were all World War II vets. And I've been told by dental alumni that the the dental schools were kind of run like the military as a result. There was and there was a bit of hazing and it wasn't a positive experience. I had a dentist once break down crying when I asked him if his child would be following him into the profession, um, which was a shock. Um, but, you know, oftentimes, though, I would say to them, don't you wish when you were in school and going through such a hard time, don't you wish that some established dentists, some alumni came alongside you and helped you out? And and to a person, they all agreed, well, yeah, I really wish that could would have been the case. And so that would be, you know, my opportunity to say, well, well, why don't you think about volunteering on our, you know, in our alumni society? Why don't you think about coming and speak speaking to a class or or making a gift, you know, just beginning that education and helping them to see how they can be part of the solution. Um, so, so that was a fun one. Um, kind of another cool gift. We had a we had this untouchable guy nobody could get in front of. He had made the largest scholarship gift to the dental school. And um, yeah, it was pretty impressive, but uh, great story for him. He was, he was uh, from a big farming family out in Eastern Ohio. And the parents uh, didn't really approve of education. And then one, one night, the oldest brother uh, just disappeared in the middle of the night. He escaped off to uh, uh, the engineering school at OSU to, uh, to get a degree. And uh, one by one, all of his siblings disappeared in the middle of the night and ended up at Ohio State. And he put them... <laughs> Yeah, he put them all through school himself, as you know, with the proceeds from his engineering career. Just a, such a cool wow. story. So, so <laughs> now, when you, I have to clarify. Yeah, go ahead. When you say they disappeared in the middle of the night, they had to sneak out. Okay, they they literally and like were they going to night school or did they just leave? And no, they, they left home because so this would have been like the forties or fifties, maybe. Okay. So this was a long time ago. Okay. Wow. And this this was a, a you know a pretty traditional I want to say German I can't quite recall uh, family and they just they didn't approve of education they thought yeah. it was foolish they didn't want their kids leaving home they needed them to work the farm. Wow. Yeah. Have and, you ever heard how this story ended? From oh, the- I know exactly <laughs> how it ended. I, I don't know how the what the parents thought, but. But so all these all these kids go through school. One of them becomes an uh, an oral surgeon, and uh, this oral surgeon, as he was getting towards the end of his life, realized that fifty uh, percent of all of his assets were going to go to the government uh, because money was in an IRA, that sort of thing. And he had been very active as an investor, um, but he was kind of finicky. Um, so, well, first I'll get to that, but he he responded by becoming a philanthropist. And so if you go look around the town he practiced in, other, other there were like maybe two schools near his practice, uh, then at Ohio State, each of those different colleges, they all, the largest scholarship they have is all from this one guy. 
But his biggest gift was to the engineering school because he named a scholarship after his brother. And God bless him for that. That's fantastic. But he gave it and he had told the development officer there, he's like, if anybody ever comes and tries to talk to me besides you, I'm never going to give again. And so, you know, I wanted to talk to him, obviously. Um, I couldn't. I talked to his prospect manager. He explained the whole thing to me because he had a kind of a do not contact uh, note on his thing. So we left him alone. And I'll never forget the day because I was trying to figure out, well, maybe I can steward the guy. Maybe I can report to him what, you know, who got his scholarship because he he didn't name a scholarship after himself. He named one after his brother, but he gave gave one uh, to a, a scholarship set set up in honor of the guy who was dean when he was in school. And so I was trying to steward him and um, I got, I, I was literally typing up the stewardship report when I got the email notice that he had died. And I was just distraught. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Right, right. Well, good news. Um, a good partners at the engineering school, they were able to help me um, go to an event, an engineering scholarship event where I got to meet um, his son and, and grandson and some of the family members and, and thank them. And I started stewarding them. And uh, again, you wouldn't think, you wouldn't think that this particular person in the family would, would be the person, but um, the, uh, the grandson um, had been helped out with school and different things by his grandfather. And as we got to know each other, as I stewarded their gift, um, you know, one day he said to me, you know, you know, grandpa never named anything after himself. There should be something in his name at the school. And so, you know, he really initiated all that stuff as, as the youngest person in the family. And it, it really uh, made it. So, you know, we, we got a number of six figure gifts from the family collectively and uh, it's it just a fantastic story, but it all started mm. with another person in their twenties, you know. Right. Mm. So cool. Yeah, and I'm glad you're telling these stories because there are a lot of people new to the field who like have a tough time comprehending that someone in their twenties or their thirties could give a bunch of money because you know, like a lot of people you know, spend their whole career and never earn like a bunch of money, much less, you know, some exorbitant amount when they're 25 years old or something. And so they just can't fathom that like some super young person could give $10,000 or $50,000. And, you know, I just experienced this. A friend of mine was working for, you know, a really small organization uh, saw someone in the database who gave, I mean, it was a small gift. Maybe it was a hundred bucks or something, but I think he was a volunteer too. And so she calls him up and they wind up having this conversation. They don't discuss, they don't discuss money at all. It's just about the organization. And a week later, a check for $7,500 shows up in the mail. And I mean, he's, he's about 30. He's never, never given anything like that before wasn't asked for it it was just like here you go and so and so this person thought that like it must be family money or it must be 
the whatever. It's like some people are just like making bank or they're saving for a long time or they're just really generous. And it's just, yeah, there's a lot of people out there like that. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, you know, while screening information is helpful, you know, I've it's definitely helped me to see people uh, that I wouldn't have expected otherwise or wouldn't have noticed. But, you know, nothing, uh, nothing makes up for actually getting out and getting in front of somebody because, well, you know, and, and you know this, but well, screening only shows you what's publicly available. And, and so it's not going to tell you if somebody has inherited an IRA or, um, you know, even if they have money in a LLC that that's hidden because, you know, their, their name's disguised. It just, you know, you got to talk to people. Um, yeah. And the, I know I'm preaching the other, to the choir. Yeah. The, the other thing wealth screening doesn't show is desire, you know, like it doesn't, it'll never, what happened when you were with the grandson and he told you that, like, man, people have thoughts like that all the time. Like, man, I would love to do something for my grandfather or, you know, name something after whoever they think that, but there's never the opportunity to share that with someone who can like make it a reality. Um, so just being in front of people gives people the chance to verbalize that to someone like you. And then y'all can go on this journey together to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. That's for sure. All right, Tom, you've told us, stories of success. I want to hear something of great failure. If anything oh, comes to mind, do you? Well, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of those. I mean, like I said, 50% of my solicitations have, have just, you know, well, I'll tell you when I, you know, I kind of went through the ranks at the dental school, um, started out as stewardship coordinator, um, annual giving, doing a little bit of uh, direct solicitation as well, worked my way up to assistant director, then director, reporting to a senior director. Uh, when I finally kind of got the break to become the chief development officer at, at another school at the College of Pharmacy at OSU, um, we got there. I got there, I should say. And, um, you know, we had a, a campaign board. Um, and uh, there was a kind of a university-wide expectation uh, that anyone on a board would be prepared to make a $50,000 gift. Uh, that was the minimum in uh, for Ohio State at the time for campaign boards. And um, I was under the expectation that each person had already been told this. And uh, when, I, when I looked at my board, I saw that very few of them had made a campaign pledge and we were 50% of the way almost, we were like, you know, maybe six months, eight months from being 50% of the way through the campaign. And we were like way behind. And, um, and so I'm like, well, easiest low hanging fruit's going to be going to my board and getting these gifts closed. And uh, they had been without a fundraiser for a while. And, you know, they didn't, you know, uh, I just assumed that they hadn't been asked because the, there hadn't been a fundraiser there. Um, so I start having these conversations, um, and you know, the wealth ratings of course would tell you that all these people could, could make a gift. And, uh, a number of them were just like, oh, well, I didn't know I needed to do that. Or, um, it became evident that for some of them making a gift was not within their comfort level at the point they were at in their career. And, um, and that was okay. Um, but 
I ended up having to essentially let go very gently, kind of a bless and release sort of thing, uh, 50% of my campaign board uh, because they weren't really giving at the level they needed to be uh, to really be on my campaign board. Um, and so, you know, just some rapid fire conversations there that I thought I would have. And uh, it just, it just didn't work out, you know, um, you know, I, I, I think of another time I had a very, very high net worth um, biotech entrepreneur. Um, and um, we'd had our eyes on, on this individual uh, for a very large gift. And um, he, had, he had inquired about, well, how much could, you know, how, how much did a particular building cost on campus that we had taken him on a tour of? Um, and, uh, it was no secret that we needed a new building at the pharmacy school. And so we're having this conversation and I, I took it as, Hey, here's an, here's an opportunity. He wants to see some figures and a number and let's start working on a proposal. And boy, I misread it. Yeah, that was not where he was at. Um, and, uh, because of the potential size of the gift, I got some people above me excited about it and didn't go anywhere. And it was not, not my best moment professionally. Uh, kind of in retrospect, I wish I would have just kind of found out the number and let him know myself um, rather than assuming what he wanted. I think that's the mistake we make as fundraisers is is going off what we what we think rather than what we actually hear from the donor both ways. You know, whether that's we assume somebody doesn't want to give when they when they really do uh, mm. or when. Uh, we assume they do want to give when they really, really don't. Right? Yeah. So what? So what happened with him? Was he? Uh, yeah. Like, what, what, what? Why was he asking about the cost of the building? Because yeah, it sounds like, hey, rich guy who loves the school wants to yeah. know how much it costs to build a building. Uh, he was. He was just curious. Huh. He was just curious. <laughs> you know, oh. um, is is what it turned out. You know. Huh. So, uh, you know, you win some, you lose some. It's that reminds me of, I definitely the worst visit I've ever been on. Um, and I think I, I think I've had a podcast episode about this, so I'll keep it brief, but basically I was sitting down at an event one time and the, the guy sitting next to me is a businessman and, you know, I assumed fairly successful and he starts asking me about what I did and I'm telling him about the ministry. And then, and then he goes, Hey, tell me this. What would you do if somebody offered you a $10 million matching gift? And I was like, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Right. And right. We wind up talking. And so, and then after the event, you know, he gave me, he gave me his card. So I scheduled a visit with him and right. I asked him, so I was like, Hey, so like, I'm curious, why did you ask about the $10 million matching gift? And that's when he pulled out of his briefcase the most obnoxious plan to access all of our donors to invest in his uh, BS business and then somehow do some fancy pants mathematics to like, double everyone's money and it was just like and then he started yelling about oh random stuff and oh gosh it was awful so yeah 
little things that people say about large sums of money don't always mean what you think it does. (laughs) Yeah, I I flew. It was only an hour long trip, but I flew to another state one time to meet with uh, an alum who essentially was just trying to get my college to uh, buy into her MLM uh, cross stuff um, and, and sell it for her and so that she could give us some money. Um, you, you could that, have, you could awful. have had a gold jacket, right? Or right? whatever. <laughs> oh man, what a shame! You know, I was I was listening to your podcast the other day, and you were talking about uh, was it was that I forget who it was. It was talking about somebody that that laughed at them. Was it Jim Langley? Was that the um, maybe? Um, Give me I, some more, some more. Yeah, there was somebody who was solicited, and they they laughed at him because they just weren't prepared for it. And then they, hmm. a couple of years later, they ended up making the gift. Yeah, and, uh, it reminded me. Yeah, there was a there was a person that, that dear friend of the college, great donor, super loyal, super faithful, and um, we we were very close. And um, you know, he and I had had a, a number of conversations. Um, about some very significant, like six to seven figure, probably more like seven figure sorts of things they mm-hmm. may want to do uh, in terms of giving. And this whole time, uh, well, and, and I said to him, well, can I come talk with you about something specific? He's like, well, sure. We'd love, we'd love to have you over, Tom. And so mm-hmm. I drive up to see him. And um, I, I'm presuming that he's keeping his wife in the loop on all mm-hmm. this stuff. And, and we sit down. And we're sitting there and she's drinking coffee. And um, and I I start to, you know, talk about the size of the gift, and she literally spits her coffee out. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh we're oh. we're still friends. We're still yeah. friends, but that was a moment where I realized, you know, I speaking of assuming, you shouldn't assume uh, things like that. You know, if it's if the couple needs to know. Um, and you're cultivating just just one of the uh, couple. You you probably need to ask uh, the person. Have you talked to your wife about this or your your husband? Or yeah. So that was a fun fun time. Well, I I think there's something to be said for planning your work and working your plan. Um, you know, when, when I, when I got to the pharmacy school, we were years behind where we were supposed to be. And I had done my benchmarking. So I knew that our campaign goal was where it needed to be. And, um, I had some good research and, and I, and I was learning the profession. And so I knew we had the type of donors that we needed to be successful. Um, but because we were so far behind, the university had come to us and said, you know, we don't we don't think you guys are going to be successful. You know, would you like to ratchet back your campaign before you go public with your number? So we weren't yet in the public phase. And, um, you know, maybe maybe I would have looked better had I said yes and overshot by 100 percent. But just on principle, I couldn't accept their offer, um, you know, because, you know, when I got there, I started putting together a five year plan of all the solicitations I was going to do. and wrote out all the the strategies and all that sort of thing. And we worked through that 
uh, and we ended up finishing within maybe three and a half, four years, uh, 10% ahead. Um, we, we just really ramped things up in, in a major way. But I guess what I'm saying is the only way that's possible is if you really do your research and, and, and understand who your people are, do your benchmarking, understand similar organizations and what they're doing. And there was no way that, that Ohio State was not going to raise the same amount of money as Michigan or Purdue or, you know, some of our peers, right, in, in that field. And, um, you know, when you, when you base your goals on real data, you come up with, with better projections and you're more likely to be successful. Uh, and yes. that was a big lesson I learned from that whole experience. Yeah, really good. Yeah, a lot of times people want to just, like I love super bold and aggressive goals, but there's a point that it just turns into, you know, unicorn and pony land. And right. when that happens, just no one can take it seriously internally or externally. And it's just a total flop. So, yeah. Yeah. I once, I once presented what I thought my goal should be to a leader. Um, and they, and I walked them through the rationale and then they, they turned around and actually pushed a piece of paper across the desk at me with a different number on it. And, uh, um, now, you know, they ended up being right. We exceeded that number, but I'm pretty sure if I would have asked them, so where'd this number come from? It wasn't based on benchmarking. It wasn't based on my prospect pool. It was based on something they yeah. needed, right? For sure. For sure. Well, Tom, tell everybody about your business and how people can get in touch with you. Certainly. Uh, www.abundantvision.net uh, is, is, is my website. Um, you can find me there. Uh, certainly I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm involved in, in really major gift consulting, uh, heavily in, in coaching, uh, but also helping organizations that don't have major gift programs figure out how to get those started up. Um, you know, that's, that's the thing that I love most. I'm not an annual giving guy. Um, there's a lot of things I don't do, but, but if it involves major gifts, that's very much what I do. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love the name, by the way. Abundant oh, thank Vision. you. Well, you know, I invariably find when I'm talking with leaders and nonprofits that I say one thing to them. And it's mm-hmm. there's no lack of money in the world. There's only a lack of vision. Yeah. And, um, you know, it all starts there. If you want a great major gift program, you got to have a great vision. And so that's what for we're sure. trying to do for our clients. So good. Have you read Imagining Abundance by any chance? I haven't. Tell me about this book. Well, you have to. It's, I guess so. Uh, so good. So good. Uh, it's this woman, I believe her name is Carrie. It's Carrie Robinson. She was, so she is part of the Raskub family, which is like the family that built the Empire State Building, I believe, like insane levels of wealth. And so she was on the grant giving side of things her whole career. And then somebody asked her to like run this development office for, it was like the Yale Catholic center or something on campus. And I mean, she had zero fundraising experience, 
went in there like total disaster of a fundraising program. And then they wound up raising, it was some, it was some like, you know, 10 or $15 million over just a few years and just transformed the place. And it's, it's, it, it would very much align with, uh, your thinking and, and stuff like that. So, and there's a bunch of great stories in there, so everybody should read it. Um, but yeah, it's good stuff. And uh, I'm curious, since you're, I think you're the first person I've talked to since I did the the webinar. Would you, yeah. would you mind sharing kind of how that went? Sure. I'm curious what you Boy, thought. I, I found it really helpful, Kevin. I was, you know, um, I've been a consultant for, gosh, what, uh, just over eight months now. Um, oh, and cool. so uh, as I've thought about what my skill set is and, and where I'm probably most helpful, it really is in that major gift coaching area that that you're mm. you know, doing a great job in. And so being able to hear from you directly uh, in terms of, you know, how you got your start, you know, how you're finding your uh, your clients, all those things was so helpful uh, to me. And uh, I totally appreciate your transparency on everything and your generosity. You know, not everybody would would uh, say directly, hey, please steal this. Please take <laughs> this, you know, but but you're right with one and a half million plus nonprofits in the country. It's not like there's a shortage of clients. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, everybody that's that's listening, the the webinar we're referring to, I, I did it um, private to just people enrolled in my course, Major Gift Millions. Um, so it's out there. If you want it, you can still enroll in the course. I'll send it to you. But like Tom said, I give you I mean it's the exact playbook I use. It's how much I charge. It's how I set up the contracts. It's the conversations I have to determine if it's a good client. And I highly encourage you to just copy and paste it, do your own thing. And uh, yeah, I love, I feel like I've been blessed to like come across some really helpful information and I want to help. And it's, uh, it's cool to, to see other people kind of have the light bulb moment and get some wins. So really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Tom. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch. And yeah, thanks for sharing all these stories. Hey, no problem. Thank you, Kevin. Have a good one, Tom. You too. Bye-bye. That was Tom Dauber with AbundantVision.net. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And as we mentioned in the show, you can still get that webinar um, on how I built my consulting business. The title of the webinar is Your Path to a Six-Figure Consulting Business. And the only way to get that is to be enrolled in my course, Major Gift Millions. So if you want to learn more, go to onevisitaway.com slash millions, and you can uh, learn more about the course there. But Hope to see you enrolled there. Feel free to send me an email, kevin at onevisitaway.com. And also, if you haven't, check out my new YouTube channel linked in the notes section of this podcast where I'm uploading new videos every week. But thanks so much for listening. I hope this episode has inspired you to go schedule more visits. After all, you're just one visit away from growing your mission and your impact.